0: Today, on The Lab Board, we talk to Dr. Dom DiAgostino.
1: Talk about a biochemical genius.
0: Yeah, I'm throwing in the towel. Jealous? Yep.
1: The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led... Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to The Lab Report.
0: Yeah, the answer to that question is not much bantering. All right. We're not doing very much bantering. All right. We're going to be silent. Button it up. Hello.
1: Hi, Michael Chapman.
0: Hi, Patty Devers. There's a
1: sense of urgency in your voice. That's right. (laughs) Welcome to The Lab
0: Report. Is it better now? Yeah. Okay, good. Welcome to The Lab Report. This is a podcast brought to you by Genova Diagnostics. Mm-hmm. All things specialty lab testing, functional medicine, integrative therapeutics. And I just switched those up a little bit just to you keep did. you on your toes. I noticed
1: that. Yeah. Well, if you're new to this podcast, you should go to iTunes, Spotify, download, subscribe, rate, and review. You should do all of those things.
0: But from all those things, mm-hmm. I think subscribing is like... I'll agree with that. ...what you really want to do. They it's cannot... what the cool kids are doing. Uh, yeah, it is. It's I think. I don't know what well, the cool kids are doing, Do you honestly. even know cool kids, Michael? I don't, I don't know it. I know my kids, but... Well,
1: <laughs> people can also contact us here at the show.
0: Yes, they can. They can write an email to podcast at gdx.net. Submit a question of the day.
1: Mm-hmm. Or feedback.
0: Submit a question of the day. I'm, I'm really wow. wanting you to do that today. Pants. You know, I'm just I'm really looking forward to hearing your questions. Me so too. Me too. That's why I'm, I'm being so insistent about that.
1: Well... I can't wait for today's episode. I'm freaking
0: out. Dr. Dom Diagostino,
1: talk about a powerhouse!
0: A powerhouse of information! Mm. A powerhouse of knowledge! He's got a big following. He's got a ton of research under his belt. And hold on to your hats, people!
1: No, seriously, you thought Michael Chapman was a biochemical wizard? This is about to blow your mind. I always thought that, but this guy blows my mind. Sorry, Michael, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings.
0: No, that would not hurt my. He's. (laughs) You're deferring. Look, <laughs> this, I hope that I can like hold on Oof. to this conversation because it's gonna get thick. Get some coffee.
1: You better get your coffee on board.
0: I've already had like ten cups. All right.
1: Well, then just hold on to your and I'm chair. I'm still worried. All right. Well, why don't we call him up?
0: Okay. So Patty. Yeah. Today, this is really exciting. I know. I'm, <laughs> I'm super excited <laughs> about this. Doctor Dom Diagostino. Let me tell you a little bit about him, if you're not familiar. Mm -hmm. Dr. Dominic Diagostino is a tenured associate professor in the Department of Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology at the University of South Florida, Morsani College of Medicine. He is also a research scientist at the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition, and his laboratory develops and tests nutritional strategies and metabolic-based therapies for neurological disorders, seizures, cancer, and metabolic wellness. He was a research investigator and crew member on NASA's Extreme Environment Mission Operation, or NEMO-22, and has a personal interest in environmental medicine and methods to enhance safety and physiological resilience of military personnel in extreme environments. His research is supported by the Office of Naval Research, Department of Defense, private organizations, and nonprofit foundations. And with that, I'd just like to say thank you so much for coming on. Dom, uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. Welcome to the lab
1: report.
2: Well, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you.
1: Well, great. Well, your work with NASA and the military is fascinating as it relates to manipulating oxygen concentrations, oxidative stress, and the effects on the body and brain. And in fact, your doctorate dissertation was focused in this area. So what made you become interested in neuroscience Mm -hmm. as a specialty?
2: It was kind of a circuitous route. I I was really interested in nutrition when I entered school and was in a nutrition program at Rutgers. And there wasn't a whole lot of job opportunities in nutrition aside from working from, for a company mm-hmm. or, or you know in academia or research. Yeah. So I double majored in biology and was thinking about medical school mm-hmm. and to sort of boost my resume or CV, I started doing research and undergrad research. Mm-hmm. And I also challenged myself as an undergrad, I took graduate level courses in neuroscience. And, and one in patch clamping. They had at Rutgers, they had a, a course just in patch clamping, which is electrophysiological recordings where you could use voltage clamp or current clamp and even do single channel recordings of individual neurons hmm. where you're measuring electrical potentials. And we also did immunocytochemistry and immunohistochemistry. Wow. Yeah. And that was kind of like a game changer for me because it was like really understanding fundamental neuroscience right. from the level of. Membrane potential, input resistance, voltage clamping, things like that. Like it was Mm -hmm. biophysics. So that kind of, you know, got me interested. That the professor was encouraging for me to apply for the PhD program. And and I had a supporting undergraduate mentor who is the dean of research at Rutgers at the time. And she had a background in respiratory neural control. Mm. So the, the neural control of autonomic regulation huh. Wow! and the focus was looking at the rostral ventral lateral medulla which is an area of the brain stem that is controls our heart rate and our respiration so mm. these are basically a neural network that is why we don't have to breathe why we don't have to think about breathing right, right? Yeah. so there's a, a, a pattern generator within the medulla within the brain stem and of inspiratory neurons and expiratory neurons and then another location called the pre-Botzinger complex, which is thought to be, you know, the locus of respiratory rhythm generation. Hmm. And and these neurons are quite interesting because the general response to hypoxia or low oxygen hmm. is a decrease in neuronal activity. But hypoxia actually activates these neurons and it stimulates the, the respiration in the form of a gasp. To hmm. uh, And gasping is a very efficient means to get the body oxygen, right? Sure. So right. under low levels of oxygen, gasping or a short duration, you know, high inspiratory burst is a way to enhance oxygen exchange. And failure to gasp has been implicated in the etiology of SIDS or sudden syndrome. Mm. So there was like a lot of interest in this area for a variety of different reasons. You know, I won't go into, but I was, my PhD project was basically got steered into understanding fundamentally why these neurons are excited by hypoxia mm-hmm. and figuring out, you know, how we can manipulate them to treat a variety of diseases associated with like central nervous system control of respiration. Wow. Like there's sleep apnea, right? And mm-hmm. there's obstructive sleep apnea, mm-hmm. and then, but then there's central sleep apnea. So right. this was looking at, like, everything from SIDS to central sleep apnea. And I just kind of went down that rabbit hole and really just delved into, you know, neural control. That's fascinating.
1: Yeah. yeah. But And I see where that might take you into your work with NASA, and I totally want to geek out just mm-hmm. a little bit about this. And will you talk to us about that NEMO 22 project that you were involved in?
2: Yeah, sure. Well, after my PhD, I started doing research for the military, the Office of Navy Research or ONR, and, and then Navse, which is sort of more like clinical research that we do with Duke University. Mm-hmm. But during, during my postdoc, and then my early professorship, before I was like tenured and stuff, mm-hmm. I developed different technologies that could be used in extreme environments. Like one was, you know, atomic force microscopy it, you know, inside a hyperbaric chamber and we can manipulate oxygen concentrations and things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we did research, you know, in these extreme environments, it's mostly for the Navy and it caught the attention of, you know, some of the people that were doing NASA's Extreme Environment Mission Operations, or NEMO, mm-hmm. with two E's. So NASA creates these clever acronyms for things. <laughs> so Nemo, and it, it's it's an underwater mission. It functions as a test training ground for astronauts. <clears throat> Most astronauts are actually trained in this environment. Mm-hmm. It's part of it's a space analog that replicates we did the mars environment you know with the time delay and and different things and now there's a big focus on the lunar environment Mm -hmm. now so the, the function the the reason for nemo is to vet out different technologies not only to train astronauts but to also vet out different technologies and systems that could be then moved to the International Space Station and ultimately for a deep space mission. Wow. So, I went to what's called a blue sky workshop, mm-hmm. and, and that's kind of like a think tank to discuss different strategies mm-hmm. or countermeasures to enhance our safety and resilience in extreme environments, and one of them being a deep space mission. And, you know, I was talking about the ketogenic diet and ketones and then other things too. And then I met the director of this program. I guess it was about a year or two later. I got a call, you know, asking to to be part of the mission, to to be a crew member, which was really what? that's crazy, like pinch myself moment. <laughs> and I know yeah. prior, I had a colleague of mine, Don Carnegie, Kerne- who also works for Institute for Human and Machine Cognition, and she was on Nemo 21. Mm and then she kind of said, you know, they might be looking for you for Nemo 22. So, I got really excited and it allowed us to basically move a lot of the science we were doing into human applications. And that's everything from, you know, monitoring sleep, stress, you know, everything from HRV to looking at, sal- you know, saliva cortisol, to yeah. blood markers, body composition, sensory function, microbiome, you know, team cognition, like how the team works together. Uh-huh. So so it was great. It was, it was 10 days underwater, and we did a lot of science. I think it was like spanned over five IRB protocols. Uh, wow. And yeah, it was it's just an amazing experience to work with astronauts, seasoned astronauts. And I had an amazing commander, Shell Lingren, who was, had been on the space station for quite a while. And also Pedro de Q, who's now the Minister of Science for Spain, he actually, flew with John Glenn, who is uh, another member, and Whoa. Trevor Graff, who is a planetary geologist hmm. and sort of wow. uh, spearheaded some of the Mars missions to analyze the rocks. That's so it was. Awesome. Really
0: great. That's <laughs> yeah. awesome. That sounds incredible. Yeah. And, and I'd, I'd love to kind of <laughs> dig into what some of the results of what with the testing, you know, we do some salivary cortisol testing here as well. We do microbiome uh-huh. testing and yeah, just be really curious with respect to like some of the changes about salivary yeah. cortisol that you'd notice as part of that.
2: Yeah. So a lot of this stuff is not yet published, but it's being reviewed right now. We've actually published it maybe in about or abstracts at experimental biology and we put together a lot of the data and it's being reviewed by a high impact journal now so hopefully that gets published so i can talk sort of about myself and some of the you know data that you get from astronauts is a little more kind of hush hush until it gets Hmm. out there and because the sample size is so small, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of mm-hmm. hard to de-identify right. uh, so, <laughs> yeah. uh, different people <laughs> right. because you can look at certain data points and predict that. So my wife was actually on NEMO 23, which was an all-women group. Mm-hmm. And her commander was Samantha Cristoforetti, the Italian astronaut or uh, European Space Agency astronaut, mm-hmm. who was the first to brew espresso in I think this espresso machine was like a million dollars or something. So uh, there's a kind of a funny story behind it. But so we have two data sets now and they're sort of being mined and kind of really looked at from HRV to hormones. We did cardiometabolic measures and stuff like that. So the idea is just to get baseline data in this extreme environment. So the, the protocols were really to understand what does saturation. So when you're living in saturation, your body is saturated with the breathing gas, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So we call that saturation diving. Unlike with recreational scuba, you go down and then you're at the mercy of the decompression tables, right? You mm-hmm. got to come back up to avoid the, the decompression. So, so your body can denitrogenate. But in on the Nemo habitat, unlike a, uh, people ask me, well, how is Nemo different than a submarine? Mm-hmm. Well, a submarine stays at one atmosphere right? So you just, uh, it stays at, you know, you're you're sitting at one atmosphere if you're at sea level, unless you're like on top of a mountain or something. Right. <laughs> uh, so you're at one atmosphere, 20% oxygen, the rest of it's nitrogen. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, a little bit of CO2, argon, stuff like that. But when you go down, every 10 meters is an additional atmosphere. So NEMO sits at about almost three atmospheres of, you know, almost three times the amount of pressure, yeah. right? Whoa. Or two or three times. So you're saturated with that, which means that... If you were to, after a couple days down there, if you shoot up to the top of the surface, if you have an injury or something like that, you're going to die a very painful death, right? Right. So you're going to, your blood is going to look like you've opened the top on a a bottle of soda. That's what your blood's going to look like. And it'll cause an embolism and you'll die. It'll be bad. It's called the bends or decompression sickness. Right. So then, so that's part of the allure of the Nemo environment, which is the Aquarius habitat, is this environment off the keys, a couple miles off the keys on the bottom of the Atlantic. It replicates an extreme environment, but it also is an isolation environment. Mm -hmm. It takes longer to get to the surface from Nemo than it does to the space station. It takes like five hours or five and a half hours from the space station to get to earth, like one atmosphere. And it takes about, took us about 17 hours or more to decompress, Hmm. right? So there's like this, there's a lot of things built into it. And then you live in a dry environment, which is a habitat. Mm-hmm. But during the day, you do extra vehicular activities. So if you're on the surface of Mars, you know, you don up with a suit and then you go out and then you have to do work mm-hmm. that yeah. NASA wants you to do. You mm-hmm. know, you have to test like a drill. You got to take samples. We took samples of, of Orbicella and Ciderastria, which are endangered coral. And then we bring them back and we can actually look at you know, the genetics of them. And in the habitat, we actually had a mini DNA analyzer and sequencer. Mm-hmm. So we could sequence our skin microbiome, which was pretty oh. cool. It was one of my first projects cool. to do. So, so getting back to uh, our, so the idea is it's a stress environment, physiological, psychological and everything. Sure. Mm-hmm. So we want to monitor what happens throughout a whole range of variables to normal, you know, normal process is and we don't want to do any interventions yet because we're collecting baseline data Mm -hmm. so one of the interventions that i'm kind of interested in is a a nutritional supplement or a diet that could make us more resilient in this environment Hmm. but first we have to get baseline but my baseline was in a state of nutritional ketosis because i was already following a Mm -hmm. ketogenic diet yeah So I did, you know, everything measured neurotransmitters I measured, yes, saliva cortisol and a bunch of blood biomarkers like HSCRP and Mm -hmm. and insulin and all these things. Mm -hmm. My cortisol levels were about two and a half times more than normal Mm -hmm. throughout the duration. And I did, you know, first thing in the morning and also did a couple of days where I measured like I think four times. For three times or four times throughout mm-hmm. the day uh-huh. and got, you know, like sort of the profile there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was, that was an increase in cortisol. It could have been due to psychological, but probably the physiological stress too. That's I nice. slept less, but I slept deeper according oh. to my device data. Mm-hmm. So we are now, uh, you know, still analyzing the data and adding another group of subjects to the Nemo 23 data, which was NEMA or Nemo 22 data, which is Nemo 23 mm-hmm. So we have a bigger data set, and now we're working with that to basically, you know, it, it, it'll basically be a snapshot, not of the ketogenic diet or things like that. That mm-hmm. kind of got me onto the mission, some of the research we do there, mm-hmm. but really is like, what does this extreme environment do to sleep, to stress, to body composition, sensory wow. function, microbiome? So uh-huh. the bugs that grow down there uh-huh. are different than the bugs, you know, that grow in your office, right. Right. You know, the same kind of <laughs> microbiome of your skin is going to change. And I think mm-hmm. what we found from that data, and I could talk a little bit about it, is that the microbiome of your skin mm-hmm. was starting to resemble the microbiome of the ocean. So the, the the things the, that live you know in the ocean basically start to cohabit your skin and thrive on your skin there's a condition that a lot that a number of people got and my wife got it pretty bad actually they call it the habitat funk what <laughs> and it's like a, it's a really bad <laughs> it's like a rash and we don't know what's causing it but hmm. pretty much everybody gets it i did not get it so hmm. which is interesting i did not get it but uh but it's it's a really bad rash and you you can treat it with different things and my wife had it on her chin and some people get it Where you when you put the suit, it rubs in different areas and Mm -hmm. it can be pretty bad. So there's a lot of things that go on sort of in the environment and things like a little cut, you know, could be a pretty serious condition down there. So they have to send like uh, my commander was a medical doctor, so he was kind of up on everything Uh already. You know, little things can get really bad fast when it comes to. And infection and, and, and other things, that's you know, in this environment. So that was really a wow. fun part of it. And in addition to all the biology and physiology, we tested a bunch of different, you know, equipment and different procedures. The European Space Agency had a device to rescue an astronaut that's incapacitated. Mm. So that was kind of interesting wow. to go out on the ocean floor and then <sighs> pretend, you know, like someone's yeah. been yeah. had a heart attack and bring it <laughs> yeah. back. Wow. So
0: Cool. That's all really interesting. I know. I mean, it's funny to hear you talk about that that <laughs> entire experience because I think my salivary cortisol or my general levels of cortisol and hearing that experience was <laughs> shooting up it. two <laughs> times normal, which maybe speaks to my resilience, but what an experience. Right. And you mentioned that you had been doing ketosis during this time and that we, we know well, we've heard you speak around ketosis quite a bit as well and you've done extensive research in the area. What kind of led to your focus on ketosis? And can you speak to a little bit about ketosis and its impact? impact on neurological disorders.
2: Sure, yeah. So, during my postdoctoral fellowship, I was sort of developing technologies that would allow us to understand something that's called oxygen central nervous system oxygen toxicity seizures. Okay. <laughs> and that's a limitation of hyperbaric oxygen therapy. So, which it has like 14 FDA approved applications, mm-hmm. the okay. ones that you may be familiar with. If you're a diver, decompression sickness, uh-huh. obviously, you get put into a chamber. Right. But like most hospitals have chambers for wound healing. So diabetic wounds in particular Mm -hmm. can get pretty nasty, clostridium perpharynges, you know, gangrene that's treated, carbon monoxide poisoning. The only way to really save someone is to put them in a hyperbaric chamber and that oxygen at high pressure can push the carbon monoxide molecule, you know, off the hemoglobin. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you go too high, basically what happens is that it causes the brain, it overstimulates the brain and that can trigger a seizure right? Mm -hmm. But we don't know why this occurs. And it's a grand mal seizure, or Uh I mean, more the modern term is tonic-clonic seizure. Uh And my research was to really figure out why these these seizures occur. So we developed different technologies. And ultimately, those technologies give us insight into what was happening. And my kind of hypothesis was that metabolism was breaking down. Metabolic control was failing under this this uh, high level of stress and i discovered that a ketogenic diet you know this was being done for quite some time and somehow it got off my radar but the right, ketogenic diet right. was like the standard of care for drug resistant epilepsy right. mm-hmm. so i started redirecting my focus to seeing if i could leverage therapeutic ketosis in the form of a ketogenic diet or exogenous ketone supplements in the form of ketone esters, and then later we developed other compounds, if these could be given acutely and if they would be a countermeasure or a mitigation strategy against oxygen toxicity seizures, which is a limitation for the Navy SEAL or special operations community that use a closed circuit rebreather. So these rebreathers are high oxygen, like 100% oxygen, in a mm-hmm. closed circuit. Mm-hmm. And the function is that you evade that there's a stealth component because there's no bubbles when you're swimming under the water. But the high oxygen makes you susceptible to oxygen toxicity seizures. Mm-hmm. So we developed you know, unique in vitro technologies and now the science is moving to human applications where we have studies going on at Duke University and we have clinical trials going on with therapeutic ketosis. Hmm. It it is a proven anti-seizure effects for epilepsy and other seizure disorders. So that's how I got into that. And now it's kind of repurposing this metabolic therapy for something that seems kind of esoteric, which is Mm Oxygen toxicity seizures in Navy SEALs, <laughs> right. uh, but it could also apply to, to hyperbaric oxygen, yeah, and, you know, right. therapy
0: and than what, in a chamber. And what is the the mechanism, from your understanding, by which ketosis helps seizure disorder in general?
2: Yeah, that is actually what drew me because I was a very like mechanistically minded person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I got drawn to the work of Dr. John Rowe. He was an MD neurologist at Barrow Neurological Institute. Now he's, I think, the chair at University of San Diego Neurology mm-hmm. Department. So he did work looking at reactive oxygen species, yep. right. which are free radicals, and how ketones actually like reduce oxygen free radicals. And that was the sort of the hypothesis behind oxygen toxicity seizures is that it was a burst in free radicals from the high oxygen which provide mm-hmm. the substrate for the free radicals to be produced but there are it's likely that there are many different mechanisms working in synergy mm-hmm. for example the ketogenic diet lowers the glutamate to gaba ratio or I should say it increases the gaba to glutamate ratio mm-hmm. so, so gaba is made from glutamate. So glutamic acid decarboxylase converts glutamate to gamma immunopaturic acid, which is GABA will have a brain stabilizing effect. So yeah. it hyperpolarizes the membrane potential, whereas too much glutamate mm-hmm. can be excitotoxic and mm-hmm. lead to you know, too many action potentials and neuro excitability. There's also a decrease in inflammation and an activation of the adenosine A1 receptor. So these are the things that we know Mm -hmm. are going on with a ketogenic diet, and we are mechanistically trying to tease out the contribution of suppression of inflammation, suppression of certain reactive oxygen species, changes in the neuropharmacology of the brain as it pertains to gataergic and adenosinergic function.
0: Wow. Interesting.
1: You are speaking to like two of the biggest biochemistry geeks on the earth. So that was awesome. <laughs> <All
0: right. laughs> well, and I'm wondering too, yeah. with respect to the ketones decreasing reactive oxygen species, so you're kind of making the case that the ketogenic diet, in a way, is its own antioxidant, antioxidant system, yeah. similar to the yeah. way that increasing glutathione would have a similar effect. Is, is that accurate?
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point. So, beta-hydroxybutyrate, or the D-form, basically oxidizes Q, uh, the semi-ubiquinone site. So you Uh have less superoxide production, superoxide being the precursor to more reactive species. Like, well, you get hydrogen peroxide, but then the hydroxyl radical can be pretty damaging, especially in the context of free iron. It drives a Fenton reaction. So the, the ketogenic diet reduces the production of reactive oxygen species overall right and then then there's data to indicate that ketones have an antioxidant function through a number of different mechanisms which have never really been super clear to me but other people have published work in this area but what i have seen you know in, in our own research is that if you use a dye that measures mitochondrial reactive oxygen species there's a pretty remarkable reduction in the context of high pressure oxygen, at least. Mm. So that was very interesting to me. And in our mouse models, what we see from the brain perspective wise is that the GAD, GAD 65 and GAD 67. So the enzymes that convert glutamate to GABA are increased. Mm -hmm. We knew this happened with a ketogenic diet, but now we've confirmed that it happens with a ketone ester too. Mm -hmm. So people tend to be more calm on a ketogenic diet. There is an anxiolytic function that we've published on in rats. So there's an elevation of GABA and that's due more to conversion of glutamate to GABA. And Mm -hmm. then we, with collaborators at Yale, I sort of developed a diet and sent it to them and it got published in Nature Medicine. And it Mm -hmm. looked at the NLRP3 inflammasome. Mm
3: -hmm. And
2: it was discovered that beta-hydroxybutyrate suppresses the NLRP3 inflammasome. Wow. And this inflammasome is kind of like the root cause of many autoimmune diseases mm-hmm. and even age-related chronic diseases. Yep. So activation of this inflammasome activates like IL-1 beta, and, you know, it, maybe TNF alpha and other, other inflammatory cytokines. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the hub and it needs to be, it needs to like be assembled and it needs to be, sort of activated, and beta-hydroxybutyrate, I believe, contributes to decreasing the assembly mm-hmm. and decreasing the activation, too, once it's, once it's assembled. So that that's wow. something that we're looking into right now. We, there's an anti... By suppressing sort of various cytokines, it also reduces muscle wasting associated with cancer cachexia. Mm-hmm. So we are looking at that right now, too, and just actually published in uh journal of sarcopenia and cachexia. My graduate student's PhD work was just published in that. That's awesome. That's
1: fascinating because we hear about the ketogenic diet so often. And I've never heard anyone speak about it in that way as far as being if affected the inflammasome or being an antioxidant. I just think that's fascinating. And we know that a lot of people adopt ketosis as a way of life for other reasons, things like weight loss or athletic performance. And clearly, there are a lot of ways it can optimize health based on how you just outlined the biochemistry, but do you see any harm in long-term kes- ketosis, either metabolically or even as it affects like the gut microbiome?
2: Yeah, I get this question a lot. And I think the data indicates, at least from a clinical perspective, you know, people who have seizure disorders, uh, you know, from a childhood mm-hmm. until adult, if they're still on a ketogenic diet, long-term blood work and, you know, data on them indicate that there's nothing too serious mm-hmm. to worry about. Now there's the clinical ketogenic diet, and then there's the keto diet that mainstream people call the ketogenic diet, which right. is just really like a low carb diet. Right. But, you know, some things are, there's are some serious side effects of the ketogenic diet when used clinically. And some of the things in the past, for kids at least, and keeping in mind that this is a high ratio ketogenic diet, like upwards to 95, 85 to ninety. Percent fat, mm-hmm. and a lot of it's dairy based. The easiest way to implement the ketogenic diet is to use the majority of fat just from dairy. Mm-hmm. So, which is, you know, it, it's okay to incorporate dairy, but uh, in the past, it was a lot of hydrogenated oils because these ketogenic formulas that companies were developing were you know, to make them taste good. They Mm -hmm. were just like hydrogenated oils and dairy. So it was like kind of atherogenic. Right. Yeah. But yeah, uh, the kids got kidney stones. Some of them did. And it suppressed the growth because the protein was too low in early studies. It was like 8%. And now we know to use more like 12% for kids. Mm -hmm. And their triglycerides, some of the kids were off the roof. And I think that just has to do with the type of ketogenic diet Hmm. that was. But the kidney stone issue is kind of a serious issue. It has been mitigated by supplementing things like potassium citrate. And I think when you go back and look at the data now, there's Mm -hmm. like no actual increase in kidney stones relative to the early data. So that's, but there's like things like pancreatitis, there's, you can just have a fat intolerance, Mm -hmm. you know, and it could be doing things like altering the gut microbiome in different ways that we don't fully know and appreciate yet, but Mm -hmm. I think there's ways around that Mm -hmm. with a well-formulated ketogenic diet. So a clinical ketogenic diet, to work clinically, the ketones, beta-hydroxybutyrate, usually gets in like the two to three and upwards at the five millimolar range.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Whereas the ketogenic diet that people are kind of following in the media for fitness and things like that typically are more liberal in protein okay. and even carbohydrates up to like 50 grams a day, fibrous carbs mm-hmm. and ketone okay. levels typically get between 0.5 and like two oh, with okay. like a modified ketogenic diet. Right. But that, keto- that form of ketogenic diet is actually being used for, adult epilepsy now. And now even in the, the clinical conferences that I attend through the discussion, it's like, well, if we can do it, we, maybe we should switch patients to a modified ketogenic diet that's more liberal and they're better, you know, they're going to stick to it. Mm-hmm. And now we realize that, you know, you don't have to be super strict to get seizure control. Like mm-hmm. this modified, more liberal forms of the ketogenic diet have some pretty remarkable therapeutic potency.
0: Sure. Cool. Yeah, and you probably don't have to be so liberal, especially if you're talking about addressing things like weight loss, athletic performance, right. overall metabolic yeah. flexibility, right. things like that.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You can add, you know, on any given week, I eat a lot of plants and things like artichoke, you know, salads, arugula, berries, mm-hmm. avocado, olives, mushrooms, things that are almost like non-blight. They are carbohydrates, but because of their high fiber content, they have a minimal effect on glycemic control right. and and insulin too so you know it's really a suppression of the hormone insulin that drives hepatic ketogenesis that you know the so it's calorie control to some extent but it's really carbohydrate restriction and and moderating protein preventing mm-hmm. you know large boluses of protein can increase insulin and decrease ketone levels too sure and we know that these things can trigger a seizure like if a child Eats even a very small amount of carbohydrates or gets too much protein, it can lead to a seizure. We knew right. that, but there's still a debate, as in the epilepsy world, if ketones are actually the thing that's preventing the seizures. Mm-hmm. You know, it could it be? It's kind of universally accepted that suppressing glycolysis and insulin and another. Regulatory factors associated with those hormones can help can can control seizures, mm-hmm. but the ketone story is still an evolving story, and we think that there's evidence that ketones directly inhibit seizures. Because if you give animals a high carb diet and then you give them various ketogenic agents, you can suppress seizures in a pretty remarkable way.
0: Well, and that takes me to the question too, because you mentioned that you've developed some ketone products and there's ketone esters out there, there's ketone salts. Can you maybe talk a little bit about what those are? And have you seen that those may also have a direct impact on epilepsy?
2: Yeah. So the first agent that we started testing, and this goes about 10 years ago, was a beta hydroxybutyrate ketone ester. Mm -hmm. And that did not have anti-seizure effects. So I got less enthusiastic about using exogenous ketones and focus more on the diet. But mm-hmm. the diet, you know, was kind of looked down upon at the time and still is because it was high fat and everything. So the military really wanted something that you could give acutely mm-hmm. and it would produce neuroprotective effects within like an hour. Right. Mm-hmm. So I started studying different. Other ketone esters, and one was a ketone ester that elevated beta hydroxybutyrate and Mm acetoacetate. And this proved to be remarkably effective for seizure control. And, And now, you know, our university has a licensing partner, and we're doing, you know, clinical trials on that. But kind of more interesting along the way, kind of determined that you could take beta hydroxybutyrate and combine it with monovalent and divalent cations or electrolytes Mm -hmm. and these can be formulated into what we call ketone salts Mm -hmm. and they can be formulated in a way to prevent the sodium overload which was the biggest you know the fear in the early days when sodium beta hydroxybutyrate was the only thing available Mm -hmm. so in our research what we found is that if you get a balanced ketone salt formulation you know that includes like potassium and and you know, calcium, magnesium, and and a balanced electrolyte formulation, and the electrolytes are bound to to beta-hydroxybutyrate. And then you mix in medium-chain triglyceride oil or oil Mm -hmm. powder in the form of caprylic or capric Mm -hmm. or octanoic or decanoic, whatever terminology you want to use. And those medium-chain triglycerides, when they're consumed, they are ketogenic. So if you combine, if you make a ketone salt... Uh, product and you formulate it with medium-chain triglyceride, you are delivering an exogenous ketone that will elevate your blood ketone levels while simultaneously delivering the medium-chain triglycerides that induce hepatic ketogenesis. So you are producing your own ketones and you're delivering exogenous ketones at the same time. The fat also delays gastric absorption to the point where it extends the pharmacokinetic profile. Mm. So you have multiple benefits when you start combining different types of ketone salts together. And then you take, there's different types of fats, even long chain fats and things that can, and fiber that can delay gastric absorption. So basically what we've done is like engineer various ingredients and formulations to optimize the the delivery of ketones for specific operational conditions and also specific Therapeutic
0: conditions. That's fascinating. Wow. That's incredible. I
1: know. Yeah. And all of this is so interesting to Michael and I. And here at Chinova in our medical affairs department, we spend most of our days in PubMed. Let's be honest, right, Michael? And when you go to PubMed and you type in Dr. Dom DiAgostino, there's pages and pages and pages and pages of articles. But among the many articles you've published, We've seen that you've written about how cancer is a metabolic disease. I guess it kind of expands on the Warburg effect. Can you speak to how cancer is a metabolic disease and how nutrition or ketosis plays into that concept?
2: Sure. Yeah. And, you know, the Warburg effect gets a lot of publicity in play and, you know, many scientists you know have stated that Warburg was wrong and but I think he was he was definitely more than half right mm-hmm. cancer is a metabolic disease and it's also a genetic disease but we feel that genome stability or the fidelity of the nuclear genome is really under the control of the mitochondria which mm-hmm. will dictate the bioenergetic state of the cell right? So the DNA that we have, have, we have robust, very robust DNA repair mechanisms. And those mechanisms cannot function if ATP levels are compromised.
3: Damaged,
2: the the things that cause cancer include viruses, carcinogenic substances, radiation, Mm -hmm. you know, certain chemicals, right? So these things can directly damage nuclear DNA, but they are more damaging to the mitochondria because the mitochondria do not have robust DNA repair mechanisms. And by damaging the mitochondria, the cell senses an energetic crisis if ATP levels are not sufficient to optimize the bioenergetic state of the cell and really drive repair, you know, robust DNA repair mechanisms. Mm-hmm. So essentially, what happens is that the cell, if it's bombarded with these many different agents can cause cancer. This mm-hmm. is called the oncogenic paradox. You know, that can't. It's the cells are being bombarded with things and aging, you know, is mm-hmm. also a contributor. Reactive oxygen species, which we talked about, yep. is really sort of an inflammation. Reactive oxygen species are probably the two biggest drivers of cancer. So essentially what's, what's happening is that the energetic crisis that the cell is perceiving will cause the nuclear genome to basically activate oncogenes, and also there's a suppression of of tumor suppressor genes, Hmm. right? If you enhance mitochondrial function, so going in the other directions, we know that ketone bodies and things like diet exercise and and other things, maybe even senolytics by altering the immune system Mm -hmm. can enhance tumor suppressor genes and decrease the activation of oncogenes. So, cancer as a metabolic disease, summed up in one sentence, is really, you would say it's you know insufficient respiration or damaged respiration with mm-hmm. compensatory fermentation. So, by damaging the mitochondria, the cell defaults to glycolysis and substrate-level phosphorylation to derive not only its energy, but also biosynthetic processes that mm-hmm. contribute to the expanding biomass of the tumor, right? Mm. So... The mitochondria are essentially damaged and cannot make all the ATP that's needed. Sure. So you're using primarily glycolysis. The ketogenic diet, we got interested in the ketogenic diet because it, it shifts metabolic physiology in a way that can compromise substrate flow to the energetic demands of the, the cancer, which relies primarily on glucose and glutamine. Right.
1: Wow.
2: Right. By minimizing by reducing glucose availability, but probably the most important thing that it does is it suppresses insulin and insulin signaling, mm-hmm. including the PI3 kinase pathway. And Lou Cantley has a remarkable sort of drug that he's that's being used in clinical trials, which is the PI3 kinase inhibitors. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, the PI3 kinase inhibitors, when you consume them, auto regulatory pathways are kicked on that increase glycemia and insulin. So the PI3 kinase inhibitors really need to be for them to work. They need to be administered with a ketogenic diet to suppress insulin signaling at the same time. So we really feel there's a lot of support for cancer as a metabolic disease. Mm -hmm. And there's a dynamic interplay between metabolism and cancer genetics. And we view the ketogenic diet and other metabolic therapies not as a standalone approach to cancer management, but as a means to further augment existing standard of care or other forms of cancer therapy that are being sort of developed.
1: Well, in, in the research around some of those senolytics, do most of them have that caveat that they need to be in the face of ketosis or are they two separate issues?
2: Well, it depends on kind of what, what senolytic you're talking about. Some are remarkably powerful, like rapamycin, Mm -hmm. others like, are antibiotics like doxycycline and erythromycin, I think are, you know, senolytics that people are studying. Metformin, I believe, you know, it Mm -hmm. can, can be labeled as senolytic, you know, that it activates AMP kinase and, and sort of hits certain pathways that may have senolytic function. So this is an area that's really starting to grow now. And it, I really feel that things like ketogenic diets, calorie restriction, intermittent fasting or time restricted feeding, they have this natural process induces senolytic activity in a way that's beneficial. <laughs> Yeah. more beneficial than any drug that we currently have, mm-hmm. but drugs I feel can augment that process if that answers your question. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. And, and so would it be fair to say that you're an advocate of incorporating intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating as part of a ketogenic diet to in, induce kind of this metabolic shift?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think time-restricted feeding works really well with a ketogenic diet, so doing it prior to following a ketogenic diet could be helpful. Also, Doing a ketogenic diet before attempting to do time-restricted feeding Mm -hmm. makes time-restricted feeding easier. I think time-restricted feeding, the science behind it, is really good. I just came into my office today, (laughs) and one of the things I'm going to read right after I get off is the article, Intermittent Fasting, Physiological Implications on Outcomes in Mice and Men. So Mm. it's the American Physiology Society puts out this physiology uh, review and it's kind of like a, their high impact thing. So it's a whole review. The science behind it is very, very good. And and understanding it I think is really important. But I really view time-restricted feeding as a means to calorie restriction too. It has its own effects, but I think some of the the beneficial effects, the most beneficial effect of time-restricted feeding to the general population, is that it can help people eat less calories. And I think it also can make people more productive if Mm -hmm. they're not having to always cook, prepare, eat meals, if they just eat less meals throughout the day. Mm -hmm. I think that can really help. It Mm -hmm. also may help with gut regeneration, gives the gut a break. And it helps, I think, repair and regenerate the gut in many different ways. And this could be super helpful for many people.
1: That's awesome. Well, This is a lot of amazing information. Like, what are some of the exciting things that your research team is working on currently? Like a teaser, maybe?
2: Uh, Yeah, well, we're we're hoping, you know, the COVID-19 kind of put the stall on Mm -hmm. NEMO24, but we are looking to, you know, get more science on NEMO24. We're also interested in doing a space analog mission in Hawaii called Seas. Hmm. So my wife is working on that, and I'm looking to be part of that too. I, you know, I'm always excited about product testing. I'll be, you know, using a continuous glucose monitoring system this week and testing different protocols, intermittent Uh fasting and different supplements. Yeah. And I have graduate students are really the ones doing all the heavy lifting and work in the lab. And they have some really fascinating projects looking at beta hydroxybutyrate. I didn't talk about it, but functioning as epigenetic regulators. Okay. So being able to activate different pathways, including, you know, gene expression mm-hmm. and wow. activating genes that would otherwise be silenced. So wow. one of the things that we're studying is called Kabuki syndrome. And yeah. so I'm, I'm very excited about, you know, the basic science research being done using the ketogenic diet or therapeutic ketones as epigenetic regulators.
3: Hmm.
0: Cool. That's really interesting. Yeah. That's super interesting. I feel like we could, we could talk for hours. I know. I know. We're going to
1: have to have you come back, Tom, because we're geeking yeah. out.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even with that last bit, I was just wondering about D N N P S and all these different you know, methylation epigenetic This going to be like a whole
1: other podcast.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to keep you forever. And I do want to ask this question. So I, I know that you are a big proponent of the ketogenic diet and, and and have been doing that for quite some time. So the question that I normally ask people, which is the last question, would be, do you like sandwiches? Mm, but I don't know. My I guess my question would be, is there a ketogenic alternative <laughs> for the sandwich that you've incorporated <laughs> in replacement? Or or do you just bypass no and go sandwiches. to something else entirely?
2: Yeah, well, you could do like a lettuce wrap or something right. like that. You know? Yes. I've done that in the past. And you know, most restaurants are glad to even throw a burger. And throw like a lettuce wrap around a burger. Yeah. And give that to you. But uh but there, you know, the thing that has evolved over the last ten years is that there are entrepreneurs scrambling to this market to develop ketogenic food products uh-huh. that can allow people to have brownies, you know, chocolate bars and even buns. Mm. So there's keto buns I think you could buy. Not that all of them are ketogenic and fit the macronutrient oh. profile of a ketogenic food product, but mm-hmm, right. food technology is evolving to allow people to have sandwiches. And I think that's great because it's helping in the clinical realm too, where mm-hmm. neurologists and registered dietitians that are monitoring these patients have a bigger toolbox to assist people in managing their disorder, a seizure disorder, especially with the ketogenic diet, with new foods that are coming to market. And that's been exciting to see and that didn't exist 10 years ago at all. It started to come oh. out about five years ago. Yeah. And now there's a lot of different options.
1: All right. So soon we're going to split a, pe- a peanut butter and jelly sandwich is what you're saying. <laughs>
2: Me and you, yeah, yeah, I love peanut butter and jelly,
0: Awesome. Well, where can people follow your work? Where can they find you on social media? Where can people follow you?
2: Yeah, the best place to go is ketonutrition.org. Cool. So all one word, keto nutrition. Dot org and on there there's a link to our YouTube page, social media links, and we have a blog and we also have a newsletter. So be sure to sign up for our newsletter. We give a lot of information and deals to people we otherwise wouldn't do. There's products on there. I don't I don't sell any products. I don't sell anything really, uh-huh. but we've developed different different technologies and patents that other people our university has licensing partners for them, mm-hmm. and we tend to favor those products just because there's more science behind those products. And those products, you'll if you search around, you'll find them on our webpage. But I don't, a lot of people ask me if I have a product. I don't really, I don't have any ketone products that I sell personally. Yeah, great. great. <laughs> uh, but, but there's products that we've tested to validate their efficacy on there. So I get asked that. And yeah, the blog I think is really helpful too, because we hit on a lot of subjects that we put into layman's terms. Perfect. You know, and I think that can be helpful for people who are interested in this topic, but the science may be a little bit above their head, but we break it down in the uh the blog articles.
1: Well, awesome. awesome. Well, Dr. Dom Diagostino, we cannot thank you enough for coming on. This has been an awesome yeah. episode and Michael's brain's gonna explode. He's so happy. <laughs> <laughs> right but we can't thank you enough for coming on, Dom.
0: Yeah, thanks. It's been oh, uh, thank you, Patty and Michael. Yeah, it's been a pure joy. And have a great rest of your day.
2: Thank you. I appreciate
1: it. You guys, too.
0: Told you. Yeah, that was good.
1: See? Biochemical genius.
0: He's. I think he knows some stuff.
1: <laughs> are you speechless? I think he knows his You're, stuff. Are you having a hard time finding words? I think he knows words? all the stuff, actually.
0: <laughs> Is there? I don't know if there's anything he doesn't know.
1: Well, here's the problem, though. We
0: talked about having an astrophysicist on, and I think we, we just probably had just had one on. Yeah. We just didn't ask him about astrophysics. Here's
1: the bigger problem, though. I have lists more of questions. He just opened up so many other things to ask.
0: Yeah, we should probably have him on for like a re- ongoing segment.
1: Oh, like weekly or something? Recurring segment was the yeah. word I was
0: looking for. See, so, yeah, I can't even speak <laughs> because I'm in the afterglow <laughs> of that ridiculous interview that we well, just did. I'm sure
1: he's not that busy. He could just come on the lab report every week. Yeah, when
0: he's not on the ocean floor, right? <laughs> he can grace us with his presence. Would be so excellent.
1: amazing. But you think we should do a disclaimer?
0: Yes, I do. The content of The Lab Report is meant for educational purposes only and is not meant to be misconstrued as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Thank you very much. Well done. Next time on The Lab Report, we're going to talk to Dr. Julie Greenberg of Learn Skin.
1: We're talking dermatology. What? Dermatology? I know. Functional medicine approach to dermatology. Well, get
0: out of here. Yep. But don't.
1: You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net.
0: Here's the thing that goes unseen, right? Yeah. I'm Literally unseen. Uh It's like on top of him being brilliant and like... (laughs) <laughs> part of excursions to the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. He's also like super ripped. I know he's a bottom. He's forward. like, oh I do that and you know, ketogenic diet and Yeah. Perfect <laughs> perfect lifestyle diet and happened to be like huge, ripped.
1: I have a crush on Dom Dustino. Do you know?
0: Yeah, me too.